Hello and welcome. I'm Jessica Minhas. I'm the founder and CEO of Alba First. We are a nonprofit organization passionate about cultivating courage and supporting you on your journey of healing. We celebrate people and their overcoming. Have you ever wondered what it's like to survive stage four brain cancer? Matthew Zachary, founder of Stupid Cancer and Offscript Media, joins us today to answer the question of what it means to live in spite of our fear of the unknown. It is truly a powerful conversation. And now, please help me welcome Matt. Hi, I'm Jessica Minhas, and welcome to I'll Go First. I'm joined with my one of my favorite people, Matt Zachary. Um, he has a long list of accomplishments, but mostly I like to think of him as the Howard Stern of patient advocacy. And you're about to see why. <laughs> you're hired. <laughs> As your PR person. Yes. Yes, you're Easily welcome. You're, hired. you're welcome. You're hired. Nice website, by Hello, the way. Hello, folks. Yes, Hello. thank you very much. <laughs> it looks great. So, Matt, you and I met, gosh, like a only like a few months back. Last Thursday. It was last Thursday <laughs> at an event called The Brain Bar, which is put on by our dear friend Kyle and Alyssa. Yes. And The Brain Bar is basically a bunch of people who have brain-related injuries, illnesses, or who are caretakers or family members who get together and kind of... Have a drink. I think we said we are the fucked up above the neck club. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. I think that's fair. Is, is there a positive way to spin that or is it just like um, we might as well be real with it? Head benefits. That's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad. I have not thought about that one before. <laughs> hmm. That's interesting. You're catching me on the spot to be creative. I can't help myself. It's good. So Matt is actually – he has a long tenure in advertising – in addition to being a music composer, concert pian I can't say the word. A concert pianist. Thank you. I was You could say pianist, but it that has really that has its own Yeah, I'm terrible. Yeah. <laughs> terrible at saying. And you founded Stupid Cancer after being diagnosed with end stage brain cancer. Yeah, good stuff. You were twenty one. You did your right? research. I'm a journalist by trade. <laughs> I know my stuff. Yes, I would hope so. Also, I have trauma, so I don't walk into a room without knowing exactly who's yeah, in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's preemptive intelligence. Yeah, it's called hypervigilance. It can get you in trouble, but yeah. you know, once you're an adult, you realize you're safe and secure and you don't need those coping mechanisms anymore. But that will be in a different episode, probably. We might cover it here because okay. um, we take a lot – we take – a lot of turns and twists as to people who have brain injuries. Well, uh, hyper self-awareness is inversely proportional to self-adequacy. I think I just – that's like Did word I break arithmetic. You? I just break you? <laughs> yeah. Say I just it again. broke Jess. Say it again. I said hyper self-awareness is inversely proportional to self-adequacy, meaning the more aware you are of life, the less you feel that you're worthy of it. Well, that just took us to a really dark place deep in my soul. I'm going to go read Sartre now. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay, you open Pandora's box then. Yeah. Um, in terms of living with a terminal illness, what is it like to feel like you don't have control over your life? Well, again, we talk about terminal, right? Yeah. George Carlin does Is that the, the right bit. word to say? No, no. Well, George Carlin does a whole bit about like why the airports call them terminals. Yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't be called terminals. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Because we're all terminal. Everything's terminal. That can make you really terrified of flying. Yeah, it does. Like we're we're going to the terminal. Wow. Right. So wow. wor words are words. That's that's the George Carlin ethos. Words are just words, right? Terminal means what we define it as. 
Life, yeah. is, life is terminal. So what does that mean to you? I mean, obviously, you've said before in the past when we've had conversations, we're actually also part of Matt's podcast called Off Script. Yes. And we talked about this in one of your episodes, which was what does it mean to live when you have something inside your head that could basically blow up at any moment? And I said – and I only remember saying this because I recut our show and throw it up on my my podcast a couple of days ago, is that when you realize you have no control over something, it puts you in control of the situation. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I had totally forgot I said that until I reheard myself say that. Yeah. Can you explain that? No. Because <laughs> I think with – This is my own definition of how I understand – my space in life where I don't have to worry about stuff that isn't worth worrying about until it's worth worrying about. I see. Yeah, yeah, My okay. wife hates when I say this, but it's not a problem until it's a problem. Can you back up for a quick second and just – because obviously I know so much about your story, but you know, I'll go first, listeners, unless they've also done the investigative research, which I highly recommend you Matthew do. MatthewZachary.com. There you go. Can you just share a little bit about your story – from, I'd say, like the highlight reel. From last Thursday. Like the chapters, the <laughs> chapter titles. It's four chapters, really. Okay. So I was born and raised in New York. I went to Binghamton, upstate New York, to study music and become a film composer. I started playing at 11, and I was trained for 10 years. And wow. right before my college graduation, I got accepted to USC Film School to study with the late Jerry Goldsmith and Hans Zimmer, and I was on track to you want to be You were studying with Hans Zimmer? I would have been if I had actually gone, wow. but that's the uh, spoiler alert is that right before my graduation, I was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, but my symptoms were that I couldn't use my left hand anymore. So I lost all of my fine motor coordination in my left hand. So that's a really weird early detection symptom of brain cancer, but I went misdiagnosed for six months. You know, I, I, I tend to not want to throw campus doctors under the bus because they're a SUNY system, but you don't expect a pianist's left hand to lose fine motor coordination and immediately conflate that with brain cancer. So I went mis misdiagnosed for... What did they say that you had? Epilepsy, MS, uh, meningitis, carpal tunnel. Uh, I had a mini stroke. And then they eventually gave me Robitussin. True story. Robitussin for brain cancer. Didn't cure it. Why do you think it took so long Made to get diagnosed? Made my sniffle go away, but still. Oh, well, that's good. Why do you think it took so long to get diagnosed? You know, because, you know, like, like, like what you went through. Like no one suspects someone that's just so young has something that old people get. And just for the listeners, um, what – Matt is referring to is I have Hashimoto encephalopathy. Did I out you? Better known as steroid responsive autoimmune encephalopathy thyroiditis or something to that effect. It basically is a chronic inflammatory brain disease, which has a myriad of lovely symptoms uh, such as temporal lobe epilepsy, anxiety, uh, social anxiety. Did you know that's part of it as well? And we have that anyway. We do have that anyway. So just take it up another notch. Yeah. And then right. um, migraines, insomnia. Well, there's Oh, and the lovely cognitive dysfunction, which basically means that my executive functioning, all the things you need to do in life to have a job or relationships um, at whim can sort of go offline. Just so, a little below average from time to time. I would maybe <laughs> even say, I mean, you know, I recently had my neuropsych assessment, which is like they measure all your executive functioning based up against all these other mechanisms. And were they laughing basically. in the background? They basically <laughs> should have because I walked in thinking that I did awesome. Um, right. I took the test right before I had gotten diagnosed and then I took it again two years into treatment and I walked out of the room like, yes, I nailed that. I'm on my way. I'm back. And, and then you're, you got a fax the next day that said you're basically fucked. <laughs> 
Yes. Notice they said facts. I mean. <laughs> you got a CD-ROM of information. They just left me a voicemail that was like, you're actually worse than you were before. Right. We got to go to lunch, but I'm a neuropsych alumni as well, several. Oh, really? Yes. I have no facial recognition. I can't memorize anything. And I have my short-term memory is that of an 80-year-old. I feel so at home, you know, with you. <laughs> We're the wow, same. I didn't know that. Yeah. We didn't cover that. Wow, that's that's amazing. Well, I'm sorry, but also, yeah, thank I'm you. sorry. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, You're welcome. I guess on, you know, on the first episode of my podcast, the inaugural show that I did, I talk about how executive function got in the way of my being the CEO of an international three million dollar nonprofit, having to work with industry in Silicon Valley who don't know what executive function deficits are. And making having to make excuses for yourself in a way that was apologetic without feeling pitied. So you got diagnosed. Yeah, chapter one is concert pianist going to film school, brain cancer. No more piano, no more grad school. And brain cancer. That's when you started stupid cancer, which is the nonprofit. No, no, uh, that was a decade later. Wow. Okay, but stupid cancer is the nonprofit you're referring to. Yeah. So yeah, okay. So I spent like from ninety six to two thousand and six in the agency world because I fell back on another advertising hobby. agency. Advertising agency, healthcare advertising agency. Oh, well, healthcare. My, I didn't realize I was working in a healthcare agency until okay. I just, you know, got, I got a job at twenty two, happy to be alive, and I was like, whatever. But I, have, I, I tinker. I'm a Mac guy. I, I was building computers in my 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 single digits. So, but, I, but yeah, wait. You just said um, you happen to be alive. Like, yeah. What was the diagnosis once you finally got? Um, oh, you'll be dead in six months, and then I'm alive. And what kind of cancer? Obviously, it was it, I know it was brain cancer because I yes. did my research. <laughs> but like, what type and like where was it located? Does that right? It was very unique. I had one in two hundred a year. Was what I was diagnosed with, called the medulloblastoma. It is a congenital, the only congenital brain tumor. You're wow. born with it in your head, wow. in utero. It's a gene mutation in utero, and only one in two hundred people a year get it in in the world. So, the, guy. the the differential is that it's not in your brain; it's actually in your cerebellum, which is technically your brain, but it's the 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 lower lobe in your spine. The brain is three parts: cerebellum, cerebrum, and medulla. Right. Yeah, so, right. I knew that. Yeah, of course you knew that. Yeah, AP Bio. Doesn't everyone have AP Bio? I just don't remember that stuff because I have executive functioning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. No, you can't pull your brain card with me. <laughs> so yeah, so the cerebellum is what controls all your autonomic functions: breathing, kidneys, lungs, liver, blood, oxygen, everything that happens in your body that you don't control. Just your normal autology that's controlled by your cerebellum. So when the tumor's in there, it messes all that up. Which is why I had hearing issues and sight issues and, and gait issues oh my gosh. And, and seizure tendencies and my fine motor. What did gone. you think when you first started having the symptoms? I thought nothing because I was a stupid 21-year-old. And like in the movie Amadeus, I just wound up switching my hands to play the, the, the bass with my right hand and the treble with my left hand. Did anyone notice and say, isn't it interesting, Matt, that you're playing with opposite hands on the piano? No, I they just thought, that, that kid's really talented. He can do whatever he wants. I was very talented. And uh, my only, I'm a lefty, so the left hand wasn't working. So my friends were like, why can't you sign your name anymore? You know, why can't you write anymore? Why are you bringing your laptop? Yes, I had a laptop in 1995. Did you make it yourself? Did you build it yourself? It was a Macintosh PowerBook 180. Google it. Impressive. Yeah. So I was typing, and I couldn't really type with my left hand, so I learned to type really well with my right hand, but no one noticed. I was also – you're in denial, right? Like, so what? Something's wrong with me. What did your I'll parents say? I didn't tell them. I didn't tell anyone until I had a seizure. 
And then I went home and got diagnosed. You had a grand mal seizure? I just had like a fainting mini thing. Okay. Like I just went like like when gravity takes over, you just go bam, right on the floor. Yep. Like a narcoleptic. Like a bam, right on the floor. And then like finally went home, said, Dad, something's wrong with me. And this is how long after you started having symptoms? Oh, four months. Easily four months. Why do you think it was that you didn't want to talk about it? You you said you were in denial. Is that really what I was just going on? I just thought it was nothing. Like you're 19, 20, 21. Like nothing's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you when you're 21. Mm, I see. I see. I just wanted to graduate and go to grad school. That's all I cared about. I was playing piano. Nothing would stop me. And it's just, just like a little fine. I have a, I have a cold in my hand. Wow. <laughs> I remember it vividly. Like it just didn't – I was like frustrated. Like why is this happening? But I don't care. I'm still writing symphonies. I'm still produ- producing musicals. I'm still doing all my stuff. But I, I just – I don't know. Like you're an idiot. Every 21-year-old is an idiot. No offense to 21-year-olds. You're an idiot by comparison to being 31. And you're an idiot by comparison to being 41. Every 10 years you age, you realize how much of an idiot you were 10 years prior. That's true. Yes. That's true. <laughs> yeah. No, you can be smart in the moment, but in 10 years, I was an idiot back then. Of course I was an idiot. Like, I didn't think – maybe I, I went to the doctors on campus and I said there's something wrong with me. And then, like, maybe – put your backpack on the other shoulder. Maybe so they're thinking it's like a nerve thing. Yeah, some kind of yeah, nerve like, thing. Yeah. Or, that's why they thought I had a mini stroke, and that's why they thought I had early onset MS, and they thought I had I mean, um, early onset- meningitis. I, they made – Things up. But when know. did they start doing actual scans? Oh, uh, after Thanksgiving. My first MRI was on December 27th. Why did they decide finally we're going to do scans? Because that was when I started slurring my speech and had my, my fainting spell. And this is this is four months still? Or even no, longer? No, this was four months. So the symptoms started in August, and I was finally diagnosed properly on December 29th. What did they say to you? Did you were your parents with you? <laughs> so this is my like favorite like 90s story. This is a, a total 90s, like, pre-Friends Alanis Morissette kind of story out there. And I'll tell it, I'll tell it briefly, but it's going to involve a lot of technology that doesn't exist anymore. So I went to the neurologist who said, there's nothing wrong with you. Then I went to get an MRI, like, the next day. An MRI was back then was, like, the newest technology. Like, you're, like, signing waivers that they won't magnetically kill you and all these things like that. And I went in in the morning. My mom took me because my dad worked. Actually, my mom worked too, but I think it was a Saturday, whatever, and took the MRI. It was like an hour and a half because back then it was an hour and a half to do your whole body because they did the brain and the spine. I don't know why they – whatever. Went out to din- uh, to lunch at the diner with my mom uh, afterwards, got home, and the answering machine was blinking. Google the phrase, my answering machine was blinking. <laughs> okay? This is pre-cell phones, pre-everything. The yellow corded phone on the wall in your kitchen. I loved those. Yeah. Those are great. Yeah, I miss those. Yeah. But the answering machine said, you know, please come back. Oh, wow. Come back the same day. Come back now. Wow. To the radiology clinic. And they wanted to scan me again with something called gadolinium, which adds some more contrast. So they get a deeper image into the MRI. And they, they did that. And then I got a call the next, like, the next day that the neurosurgeon wants to see you. I was like, uh, excuse me? The what? So it turns out I had a mass in my brain. And I have a picture of it. Like I show it on every time I give a a speech or a keynote. And yeah, I was was relieved. Oh my God, there's actually something wrong with me. Wow. Yay, there's something really, really, really. Matt's not making this shit up. It's not in his head. But yet, it's in his head. 
that is something we've actually talked about and I talk a lot about with friends who get diagnosis is like it's this like double-edged sword, especially with brain stuff, but it's like you can't see it on your arm. You're not going to be like, It's oh invisible. It's totally invisible. So, not a rash. Yeah. When I got diagnosed too, I was like – Not a mosquito bite. This, thank goodness. But then yeah. it's like, oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yay. Uh-huh. Oh, no. <laughs> So yeah, so that we had the meeting with the neurosurgeon. And how big was it when you? What did you think? It was a little bigger than a golf ball. When you saw on the scan, how did you feel? It's like that doesn't belong there. Did it connect for you? Were you like, oh my god, that's me? Or was it still sort of like a? Oh, oh I don't interesting. I, I blocked out a bunch of stuff, but it was. I mean, again, I look at the photo now. It's like, yeah, that shouldn't be there. You don't have to be a radiologist to know that there shouldn't be this giant golf ball sitting in the middle of your brain. But wow. but the fact that it it made sense, yeah. That here's everything, hundred percent of what's wrong with me is because of this thing. So like, all right, just get it out. All right, we'll take it out. And they thought it was benign, which is a you know funny happy moment until they realized it wasn't benign. Wow. Which is after the surgery, they ran pathology reports around the world. They're like, this kid can't possibly have medulloblastoma. That doesn't happen in twenty one year olds. It happens in four year olds. So not only was I one of 200 medullo, I was the only one over the age of 18. Is that because typically children with that diagnosis are diagnosed earlier? Yeah, because or- you're born with it. It presents very early on yeah. in life. It doesn't just linger in your brain for 20 years. So you were years. like the oldest patient. At the time, I was one of the oldest medullo patients with a pediatric medullo. There's adult medullo that happens when you're really old. Okay. That's still very rare. Yeah. But it's two different biologies. Okay. So there's kid medullo and, and old people medullo. Kid medulo presents under the age of eight usually, and I was twenty one. So it, it, there were no, there was no protocols. Like there's no like Julia Child look her up, you know cookbook that I should have said Rachel Ray. There's there's no Rachel Ray cookbook, you know for what to do with Matt. So that that's a whole other podcast of what the hell happened to me between uh, January eighteenth and February thirteenth of nineteen ninety six of what the hell do we do with Matt because we've never seen this before. At Sloan, at NYU, at Columbia, at Mount Sinai, we've never seen this before. And we don't know what to do with Matt. So I was really one of the million in terms of that. But that's that's chapter one. Yeah. Chapter two is I got this job uh, fixing all the Macintoshes and changing toner and, you know, installing Quark Express and all this PageMaker and Macromedia Flash oh, wow. and Take Adobe PDF way, 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 way back 25 years ago or so. But I was a coveted asset because there were no Mac geeks in Manhattan at the time. None. I was like one of like six guys that fixed every Mac at every ad agency in the city. This is after your This is after surgery, surgery, after radiation, which was a whole other bag of mess, and then graduating on time, which I did. That's incredible. Kudos to Binghamton for letting me sort of uh, kind of like – they didn't want bad PR. (laughs) Sorry, brain cancer kid. You're not going to graduate on time. I had to call USC and I canceled my – Deposit. Wow, it was, that must have it was, been painful. Was, I mean, at the time, it was the worst thing ever to realize I may never play again, let alone be dead wow. in six months or wow. God knows what the summer was going to be. But I, I somehow muddled through and I, I was a train wreck of a person. I lost 110 pounds. I was wan. I couldn't have solid food. I lost most of my hair. I lost my ability to taste, my ability to smell. My friends went off to grad school. I was I was like a, 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 like a – what are those called? Like a hairless cat. With no friends. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Under a blanket, feeling miserable for months and months and months and months. And months. Yeah. Um, but my dad, I love my dad. He said something along the lines of, if you're going to die, die employed. Wow. It was nice. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a genteel 
No, I, I'm just processing right. that phrase. Like, 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 don't sit here on the couch waiting to die. Get a job. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, still try and build a purpose. Right, find something. Yeah. So, I, I again, here's another 90s thing that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, I went to the New York Times on Sunday. And usually, back in those days, you would just open the want ads. And you would take a pen and just circle the want ads that you wanted. You'd, you'd use the pen enough that they came out of the paper. You'd line them up and you'd start making phone calls. And you'd leave messages, you know, on their on their answering machines at these offices out there. And I applied for like six positions to fix Macintoshes, and I got a call on Monday to come in on Tuesday, and I was hired on Tuesday. Amazing for forty one thousand dollars a year, which at is a lot. Years old, yeah. right? By nineteen ninety six, yes, yeah. So I went from cancer, death, and dying to forty one grand a year fixing Macintoshes with no no future of being a musician. Chapter two is really quickly. I spent 10 years in advertising, building brands, got into creative, uh, you know, consumer research, market studies, influence, all the fun, cool stuff out there. I helped launch Cool Ranch Doritos, and I was involved in when BMW Mini entered the market in the United States, and I worked for Mattel for a little while, like lots of really fun, cool things. But the one thing that triggered sort of chapter three was that I was able to rehab my hand. It took me five years. But along the way, I was writing music in my head because I went through the Shit Happens tour. So I, I had written symphonies and, and orchestral pieces and all sorts of TV commercials in school, but I'm home with just a piano. Yeah. And I don't have an, a symphony at my leisure to write stuff with and test things out like I did at school. So I went up writing um, about 50 songs. And my friend who did go to work for Hans Zimmer invited me out to LA in 1998 to a studio and I laid down 50 tracks. Wow. In and like, you, in you're, pl- you're playing at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was good enough. I realized that I, I had to reconcile that I'll never be what I was. But how I, did you do that? Because that, I think, is a, a... It was hard. A story that comes up a lot. How do, how do we kind of wrestle through that moment where we realize that? When you're an artist, you're your own worst critic. True. And you're here to not please 99% of people. You're here to please the 1% that are like akin to your talent and skills it's bougie but it's how artists work otherwise you have no aspiration to be a better artist i i just posted actually i just posted something either on linkedin or facebook about a i played scenes from an italian restaurant when i was like 14 and i taped it on a tape deck and i found the recording recently i converted the cassette tape to an mp3 and i posted it and i realized holy shit i was a good piano player at 14 years old and then i i listened to some of the music i wrote when i was in school and I was like, I wrote symphonies at 17 years old. That's incredible. You know, and like I will never be that. But by the time I rehabbed, I realized like Hollywood isn't going to hire a, a washed up 26-year-old. They're going to hire an out-of-the-gate 22-year-old, right? Isn't that wild that four years yeah. feels like such a big difference? It did, yeah. Particularly in entertainment though. Entertainment is just a different beast when it comes right. to age and entering in right. and how that matters so i self-published two albums which i'm getting like a dollar a day from itunes now thanks grandma (laughs) and they're called scribblings in every step of the way and it's like 41 tracks of music i've recorded 50 tracks that just came out of me and we splice and dice them and put them on the albums. i made up the names for them or whatever but early on in 2002 i was kind of giving them away to my doctors and my friends and i word got out that, that the pharma companies got copies of them and they Wanted to buy them from me because back in those days they could Farm, pharmaceutical companies, the drug companies, back wanted in the, to buy my albums and slap the drugs on them. 
as marketing tools. Really? Why? Why? Because they wanted to make doctors aware that their drugs exist through kitschy marketing things that they can't do anymore. Was it because you were a cancer survivor? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was a PR story. I was the kid that was told he'd never play again with terminal brain cancer. That's now a concert pianist with albums. Did you feel – were you okay with that? Was I was totally okay with that. It was like so validating. And it was money. Yeah, true. So like a quarter million copies of my CDs went all around the world to doctors and patients and conferences. And I got branded as the cancer-tainer. And you felt good with that. Because it got me on stage again. Uh, and I'm asking that because sometimes when I talk to domestic violence survivors or even my case, it's like, oh, I'm a survivor of XYZ. Sometimes it can feel good and sometimes it's like, oh, but I'm more than that. So it's interesting to hear you say like this label that you really actually embraced. It was actually validating for you. I was a shill, but I enjoyed being a shill because it got me back on stage. It made me feel creative. It validated me. And when you're an artist, you want to be in front of a crowd that applauds you. Yeah, And true. I got – Hundreds of maybe maybe 60 or 70 gigs to speak at patient conferences, sales meetings. I was I, I gave a concert on the hill for 30,000 people. 30,000 people? Yeah. there's a they, they, dra- they put up this like giant like Rolling Stones level kind of stage set on the National Mall. And I was the opening act for 30,000 people. Wow. It was for the American Cancer Society's event called Celebration on the Hill. And it was a lobby day to pass like Hillary Clinton's Childhood Cancer Act and a bunch of other things out there. And that was like where I started to get noticed by the advocacy crowd, which leads to Chapter 3, which is I was plucked out of the advertising industry into the world of patient advocacy and mentored for three years and transitioned out of advocacy to start a nonprofit that I felt was needed in the market. And where were you mentored? At American Cancer Society? I was mentored by the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. Okay. Mentored by a group called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, the Children's Cause for Cancer Advocacy, people that live strong, and uh, it's just a bunch of other amazing Breakfast Club rapscallions who are looking to do some dent in the universe stuff for young adult cancer. And in my exit from my, my nonprofit, I talked about how back in those days, young adult cancer were not three words that were spoken in succession. And I was like, you're starting a movement about me? And everyone that wasn't 80 with cancer and like count me in. What can I do? And the, the, the group at the time, they were a lot of researchers and activists and advocates and survivors that are all in their 20s and 30s out there. But they were no marketers. And I – You're like the, the triple threat. I, I mean you're I, literally the triple threat. What? Music – creative yeah. advocacy. Well, I didn't know what advocacy meant. My first question was, what the hell is an advocate? What is an advocate? It's someone who wants to make sure what you went through doesn't suck as much for the next you. I like the sound of That's that. That's my version of advocacy. I like that. Make it suck less for the next you. <laughs> <laughs> you are trying to ensure that things are better when shit happens next time for someone else. True. Yeah. Because advocacy can also mean lobbying Congress and passing bills and state legislation and doing voter influence. But for me, advocacy was I can help another young kid not get Robitussin for brain cancer. That is a tagline. Right. So, And that yeah. became like my talk. Robitussin for brain cancer was like this thing I started doing. And when I realized that, you know, n- nothing to the detriment of the, of the amazing crowd back in those days, but there were no branding. You don't brand cancer. You don't brand anything. There's no health branding. I mean, today is different out there. But I envisioned uh, a community that didn't exist through brand integrity. And Stupid Cancer was born out of a matrix of leadership from the agency world that I convened. It was a Gen X 80s themed 
get pissed off brand, not a here's a wristband, here's a ribbon, you know, oh, you don't have my body part, go over there, territoriality of, of a colon, liver, breast, whatever. And Stupid Canto was Festivus. I love it. This kid from Brooklyn started this brand that spoke to people in a way that was like, we're talking now. It's not doctors. It's not advocates. It's not policy people. It's like I'm just a guy that's pissed that I got sick, and I'm pissed that people still got sick that aren't 80. And no offense to 80-year-olds, but sorry, you're okay. You know, you'll probably live or you'll die in 20 years, and that's great. I got 60 years left on my life. I see what you mean. So just perspective of yeah. like what it means to get this sick. Right. So, so young. when it goes back to any young adult chronic thing that we're dealing with now, you have you're in your formidable years. This this is a different point of life than being 55 and in the ARP world and retired. You know, I'm not worried about my my house in Florida or my grandkids or how do I deal with Medicaid Part D. I'm worried about dating, fertility, getting a job, keeping a job, managing mental health. You know, being less depressed. You know, all these things that are difficult enough when you're not sick are amplified. So young adult cancer movement. I gave birth to the young adult cancer movement in 2007 when I launched Stupid Cancer. And uh, over the course of, what is it, 13 years, 12 years, it became the dominant brand in the world for, for millennial, now millennial cancer. So, I, But I, I saw that as like that was – I built it for me. It was very selfish. I wanted, I wanted the community that I wish that I had. Yeah. That wasn't there for me. Yeah. That's advocacy. That makes sense. Yep. So stupid cancer has very profoundly in an evidence-based data-driven way demonstrably made young adult cancer suck less. Wow. And now you have transitioned away from that. Yeah. My kids – This is chapter four. Chapter four is that my children forgot who I was. Of course, when you work in nonprofits, it's all day, every day. It's not a job. It's – that's your life, especially when you're a founder. There's no nine to five. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put your heart and soul into it. And I, I had a gestalt moment, you know, a year ago, and I, 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 I can't do this anymore. And I feel like there was a bit of mission accomplished attached to that in the sense that, you know, if you look back at some of the strategic planning that was done back in the Livestrong days in 05, 06, 07, all that's done. I mean, I'm not like saying it's done, like we're good, cancer's done. But how I conflate it is that young adult cancer used to suck so much more than everyone else's. And now it sucks about the same as everyone else's. So we, we brought up the par of the suckage-ometer of cancer experience. So now young adults are made aware of fertility. There are NCI research pillars for young adult cancer. There's way more long-term pediatric cancer support into young adulthood. There are scholarships and, and student loan debt forgiveness and hundreds of nonprofit support communities all around the world and just a general awareness that young adult cancer isn't better or worse. It's different, and it's a pillar of oncology. I mean, that's a success. It's a huge success. You came in, and you accomplished a lot. So that was my reconciliation in my mind about having guilt for leaving. Uh, but it was that was it. It was like mostly personal. And I'm now taking the gap year that I wished that I had in my 20s. Isn't that funny? Like for me too, when I got diagnosed, I my doctors were like, it's going to take some time for you to recover. And I think it's just that like – for me personally, it's that like overambitious type A. I'm like, nah, I'm good. Like, I'll just push <laughs> through. It's fine. I'm going to go ahead for that doctorate. Uh, just, you know, it's cute that you guys want me to take some time off, but I don't actually even know what you mean by that. Right. What am I supposed to do with myself? I enjoyed the white space. I think for me, it took, it's taken time to like be okay with not having, I, I'm just like my identity kind of got wrapped up in what I do and having illness has forced me to sort of take a step back to reevaluate that. 
Well, this has been a year of introspection. I've had to I've had to accept the fact that I'm a, a the leading influencer in, in in advocacy in cancer, and being told that by people, you know, you live inside the apple core. You don't realize what people's perceptions of you are. You're just plowing through, getting your things done, and you know the acclaim, the accolade, the the thank yous, the the response to my stepping down and moving into the whatever the private sector version of myself is. You know, hundreds of thousands of people saw my posts and, and worldwide, and, and my, it was like the exit around the world. Matthew Zachary is leaving stupid cancer. And I'm looking back now, you know, eight months later and realizing, yeah, it really was a big deal. Yeah. And I, I feel like I left the organization in great shape. There's a new CEO named Allison. I wish her all the best. And let's see how exciting Stupid Cancer Version 2 becomes in the wake of my departure. It's still a critical organization in the landscape. I just need to accept what I've done. And what do we do now with this identity, this this trusted, reputationally untarnished, you know, as of yet to be reputationally untarnished? My co-founder used to say our scandal was always pending, and thankfully nothing, <laughs> nothing ever happened. But yeah, I, I'm I'm an influencer. I'm I'm a leading patient voice in advocacy, and I can, you know, my my chapter now, chapter four, has been kind of defined by this year. What do you think is the theme of your book? Like, what is the consistent driver that you've kind of um, that you've noticed looking back now is the theme of what propels your work and propels your messaging? Healthcare messaging is too polite. Talk to me more about that. We need more fuck. More like honesty about it. We need more authenticity in the conversations that go around health. No one is calling out bullshit. No one is the Mark Marin, the Howard Stern. I appreciate the metaphor before. You're welcome. I, I was. I mean, I also go back a second because the defining pillar of stupid cancer on the outset was I became the world's first health podcaster before we had the word podcasting. Yeah, and it, um, and it was 450 episodes. Yeah, so the Stupid Cancer Show was born May 27th, 2007 on like a 56K dial-up, low broadband, live widget on like Netscape. Or Internet Explorer. And someone gave me a mic and said, start being the voice of, of young adult cancer. And we produced 450 shows. We were live and then we were pre-taped and we went to YouTube and we were like every single channel. We were on MySpace in the early days. Wow, MySpace. Like we were like we, we were on Facebook in 2008. We got on Twitter in 2009. You know, we were on every blog talk radio. put us on Apple iTunes. We were the first – Cancer health things on iTunes in 2008 when I, iPhones came out, <laughs> yeah, when pods came out. So across all those interviews and across all the all that content which is on the internet, living and enduring media, yeah, I, I became a very, very vocal opponent to bullshit. And every single show we talked about, this is really stupid. This is really stupid. Why the hell is this happening right now? We had – Pharma CEOs and insurance companies and medical directors and health systems and every single show had a young adult survivor story. We talked about uh, everything from drinking your own urine, <laughs> which is a real thing some people do, to cannabis, to holistic therapies, to drug trials, to chemotherapy and drug pricing. It was a litany of, of – it was a crooked media of healthcare before crooked media became a thing. So now my chapter four is I, I miss being behind the mic. Because they have sunset the stupid cancer show in the wake of my not being there anymore. But how do you weaponize the stupid healthcare show, right? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I don't want to be about cancer anymore. I think there's a much bigger, broader conversation that just doesn't exist in the ether of media. What is that conversation? I think the most important aspect of uh, – I would say if there's a tentpole 
of all of this is knowing shit exists. Awareness of decisions. You don't know what you can make. True, yeah. So knowing your health rights almost. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to use the word rights because that's a constitutional challenge. It's really more liberties. I love that. Um, because you go back to pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness is not defined by a right. It's, per- it's defined by non-government interference. Channeling my inner constitutionalist. I like okay. it. AP history. <laughs> don't remember. No, okay. But the whole point is that, you know, when you walk into the shit happens store, there's no one to greet you. That I love. That is so true. No matter what it is, you know, there's no one to greet you. And you're desperate to, f- to, have, a, to have a handrail or a guardrail or some kind of, you know, bumper in the bowling lane to make you – help you understand what to do when you're in crisis. And whether it is a car accident or whether it is multiple sclerosis or endometriosis or whatever it is, everything's level set when you enter the shit happens door. And there's no one rallying around where are the consumer protections in the healthcare market that guarantee your liberty to choice. What would you say to someone who's – At fair cost. What True, at fair cost. My goodness. But that's the umbrella. You asked me like stupid healthcare, which is not the name of my show, is metaphorically stupid healthcare. We're for-profiting and private-sectoring and weaponizing the stupid cancer show in terms of content, value, and authenticity. But there isn't enough fuck in the way people talk about the shit happens door. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that you're opening this conversation up. I think it's so important. And I think we um, – you know, I, when I talk to people about actually receiving care and re- receiving resources, I hear that frustration. I myself have had that frustration with mm-hmm. misdiagnosis, just the process of insurance carriers and providers and managing your own care and trying to build communication between your teams. is so exhausting in addition to being sick. What would you say to someone who's listening right now is sort of at that place where they're trying to get diagnosed, they're not finding the right care team? Do you have any recommendations for them? What encouragement could you offer them or what wisdom from your story and journey? I don't want to be too negative, but I would say I don't. I don't have anything to offer because the conversation isn't large enough yet nationwide. Because everyone's like, oh, just be your own advocate. I did a whole TED talk about this. like uh, I mean a whole um, TEDx kind of thing uh, this year about that. You can't just be your own advocate. Nine out of ten people are not inherently self-advocating. That's just bell curve. That's what just, is self-advocating? You stand up for yourself. You don't take – you you, you are – uh, ardent against authority. You question. You question. You, you're not about status quo and listening because someone says so. You know, you're just nat- naturally precocious, right? Most people aren't naturally precocious, and that's fine. This is not a character assassination. This is just human nature and human instinct. And, you know, you go to the doctor. The doctor says it might be this. Okay. But some people are more assertive than others. And, again, that's not a fault of anybody's out there. But you can't just say, oh, just be you're an advocate. Like, I don't know what that means. If you're naturally precocious, sure, you're going to do that inherently. But to say be an advocate, you know, search for things, you it's hard to rise to the occasion when you're terrified of anything that you didn't know about before. Mm-hmm. So don't listen to what your friends say from a clinical perspective. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Never diagnose yourself based on anecdotal data. Okay. Because the Facebook groups are great for life hacks and how to get through these things out there. and But, yes, doctors are of all different ilks and all different personalities and all different ages and backgrounds and generational perspectives. But they are the experts. And if you don't like what your doctor says, find the new one. But, again, that's being your own advocate. A lot of people just are complacent listening to a doctor. So we're kind of in a, in a system now where you just go to Google. And you hope to find something because 
Google should be able to sift through the crap that you need to know about. But you type in endometriosis and you get a nonprofit, a Facebook group, some person's blog, some foundation, something on the NCI, something on WebMD, which tells you you probably have cancer too. And you're, you're kind of in a rut. We're at, at a purpose of a point of information oversaturation. And the only thing that's going to change any of this is policy. Guaranteeing protection is a point of care and point of need. I completely agree. But I want to challenge you because I'm just thinking of people who are maybe listening and are really discouraged. Obviously, I'll go first is all about going first in your own story and really trying yeah, take to take the optimist route. Go ahead. No, I'm not taking the optimist <laughs> route. I'm saying like if I'm okay, speak to me. Yeah. I'm frustrated with my care. Right. You know, I'm I'm doing the rotations around doctors and I'm kind of fed up and I don't want to do the effort. So maybe it's better that I just tolerate the symptoms, even though I know that not doing the effort could potentially make my symptomology much much worse without right. pushing forward to find the right treatment. What would you tell me if I'm ex- – tell me, Matt. I'm so you're exhausted. The, you're the exasperation. What do I do? I, I can't affect policy in my position right now. What do I do? Right, because you're managing this and managing that and just yeah. trying to endure shit with style and dignity. And you don't <laughs> yes. have either of those, right? I mean the style part. <laughs> well, I, I won't question the style part. Sure. Of course not. I mean, you are just Minhas. It's true. And your website's stellar. It is. JustCommonHouse.com. <laughs> yeah, I'm hired now as your publicist. Fantastic. But I mean, to, to the exasperated, you know, give me your tired, your poor. Like, to that extent, I would say church, religion, you know, go to your pastor, go to your rabbi, so go to your imam. So find something bigger than yourself. Find something bigger than yourself. And it isn't about God saving you or God fixing you or God doing any of these things. It's... Talk to somebody who has an empathy for what you're going through that may or may not have gone through that, but someone you trust, a community leader, a pastor, a minister, uh, again, a rabbi, imam. That, that's where I went. You know, I, I, I was raised Jewish. I'm kind of Jewish at this point now. And the, the notion of, of just having the comfort of a, of a person of faith Again, wh- wherever your dogma lives in the universe out there, it was it was comfort to just be able to – because I couldn't afford a therapist. You know, priests are free therapy. You know, there, there's a value to turning to uh, a religious person just for some guidance. Uh, and maybe they would be the ones to say, well, how can I help you stand up for yourself? What would you say to someone who is having a hard time finding that community and finding that support? Sadly, Facebook – so let's go back to Facebook. <laughs> let's actually revisit those Which go, Again, it's like a full circle of, of bullshit because there are some really, really compelling Facebook groups for conditions that you may have. But they're, again, bell curve. They're going to be crazy people in there. They'll be – and you don't know who to trust, which, again, don't take medical advice from Facebook. Don't take medical advice from Facebook, but search for the right community, and that com- community might be online. If Which goes back to just be your own advocate, which you can't, right? So – I look at the only solution any problem in this country is policy. Policy is the only thing that solves problems. I go back to some of the successes of young adult cancer. If you have student debt, like like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, government student debt from loans, right? Those tons of people have them. And you get unemployed. You get, I don't know, like in a car accident, something happens. You can defer your loans. You can You can put them on hold and just defer them. And when you're ready to pay them back, you pay them back. Unless you have cancer. Cancer was the only condition that if you have a student loan debt with the government, again, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Pell Grant, you couldn't pay it back. You had to pay it during treatment 
legally you were obligated, they wouldn't accept the fact that you had cancer or couldn't pay. Until the Young Adult Cancer Movement came around. and Until of, you came around. Well, until me, but I mean, it was someone else had done it, but the support. Of, of hundreds of thousands of people who care about generationality in, in, in entitlement, that's a bad word, were able to pass a federal omnibus spending package that included student loan deferment for cancer. So now if you have Fannie Mae Freddie Mac Pell grant and get cancer, you don't have to pay your, your, until you're cured or done or whatever. So I, what I'm hearing but is – But that policy solved the problem that, you know, you sh- yes, it's nice to bitch and say, I shouldn't have to pay my Pell grant back because I have fucking chemotherapy going on. But, yeah, policy solved that problem. So if you're looking at the, the the solution to just be your own advocate and you don't have a greeter and this shit happens, your policy can enact that greeter. Can you give us some like straightforward one, two, three steps for whoever's listening to like what they can do next? Because I think it's amazing to talk about policy, but we're really trying to – No, and like, I get it. I get yeah. it. Like, I'm conflicting myself a lot with how I was able to manifest – my ability to because be you an are. I mean, you—that's your personality. You are precocious. You go for it. Right. You're determined. You know, you will. You will f- find a way where there is none. But you know, obviously, I'm like that too. But I'm realizing not everyone is like that. If someone's sitting at home right now and they're listening, and they have an illness, yeah, they can maybe write their local people and their state level and their federal people. But outside of that, now I mean, policies for people that aren't that are that are not in the weeds. Yeah. If you're in the you're talking about people in the weeds. Yes. What about the people in the weeds? If you're in the weeds, you know, policy isn't necessarily going to solve any of your problems right now. Policy is really about people that are out of the weeds that are now in the place to give back and make it suck less. And I get that part. And but it's it's a valuable conversation to understand how you solve problems at a federal level. And you mitigate stuff that shouldn't exist anyway for the benefit of the American citizen. And cost savings across the board. But if you're in the weeds, you have to define What's important to you? Hug your kids. Love your spouse or your partner. Embrace what you find beautiful in the world. And again, like it, it's, it's hard to not conflict this with be your own advocate, but try to gain a sense of ownership of what you do have. And it's easy to say, oh, write a blog, write a journal, do a vlog. To read poetry. Read Keats. You know, r- read Shakespeare. Read your favorite book. Find a way to gain a bit of an anchor in a sea of chaos. I for love me, that. for me, I had a piano, and that's the only. And even though I could only play with my right hand, that was the only thing that kept me going. And, and I wasn't suicidal, but the only thing that really kept me getting up every day and going back to treatment was I could play again, but I couldn't play well. Wow, that's powerful. Finding your north star, even that is hard. But I think with it, your sextant, what? <laughs> Look it up. A sextant. So a sextant was a pre-compass. Galileo invented oh, it to look yeah. at the stars and sail the ships and everything. Sorry. I'm just a total loser. It's impressive how um, robust your vocabulary is, all things considered. Well, the, the space where the tumor used to be is filled with RAM. Hey, I mean, at least something. At least something <laughs> got in there. <laughs> I know. Not like a mold. Yeah. Or um, a nest of ants or something. Final final words, final question. You have so much bravery and so much courage with your story, and I think those are two separate things for me. For me, courage, I think, is the the impetus to like do it, to, to go for it. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, and I think for me, bravery then is to keep in the fight, to keep going with right, it right. Once, you're, once you've taken the courage in the first step. What does that look like for you? 
So I came up with a personal mantra when I was diagnosed, and I remember printing it out on all sorts of different colors and shapes and sizes of paper with my inkjet. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. With my dot matrix (laughs) printer in 1995. And, you know, with the tear-off thing. I liked those. Those are cool. So the the mantra I came up with, and I, I, it was on the ceiling, it was on the wall. I looked in my room, and it was everywhere. And it was the only thing that I had from a, a mantra perspective. And it was that everything that happens to you becomes a part of your life. And you must choose to live your life and be the best you can be every step of the way. Because what other option do you have? Well, I mean, to curl up and go to sleep and hide in the closet, but but that's me. But that's okay if that's not every day. Yeah, true, true. Bell curve. Yeah, that's a good point. Balance. I like how we bring it down and depress. (laughs) 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 You're very... um, The volume knob is going all this way. It's funny because, yeah, both on one side and then to the other side, but I think... I think what you're saying is so valuable and important to keep to really hold on to those gems that can give you life and find those gems that give you life. Right. So what is on what's in store for you now? How can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you? We will be lining up a whole series of impressive, influential and ordinary hero guests over the next couple of months to become the first I would say the first advocacy channel in podcast and health. That's amazing. So and offscript.com and yep. to learn about me and my work and my music and my speaking engagements, it's matthewzachary.com. Matthewzachary.com. I'm overwhelmingly and unnecessarily Googleable. Well, I mean, I know that's what made it so easy to bring you on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We'll definitely have to have you back next time to talk about relationships and illness. That was something. Fertility. Fertility yeah. and illness. And what is, what is like just like all the other costs that come along with being sick and trying to move forward. And don't start a charity. Oops. Oops. My bad. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. Right. Bye. Bye. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.